Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Flashback, a cinematic sci-fi platform puzzle action game developed by Delphine Software and published by US Gold for the Amiga computer platform in 1992, with releases on the Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo, Microsoft DOS, and other platforms following in later years. We are going to talk about that game in just a minute, but first, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 26, and I am excited to be here. I hope you are all too. If you'd like to reach out to me and let me know how I'm doing, give me some feedback, suggestions, advice, comments, talk about classic gaming, or give some recommendations for the future, I would love to hear from you. There are a couple of ways you could reach out to me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel so inclined, please feel free to send me a note. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment and go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question and its historical context. Where does it sit in the overall computer and video game history? And then after we do that, we'll go into a pseudo-review section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we're going to assign a numerical ranking or rating or do anything like that. But we will talk about each game from several perspectives. We'll talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? Narrative and story, if the game has one. Playability and controls, and the overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, however many years ago? And we do that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well it holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game makes it into the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a classic. You should play the game. It doesn't matter. It is just one of those experiences that has to be experienced at some point in your life. It is just that darn good. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are games that are still awesome experiences, still highly recommended that you play, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. Moving on down the list, we get to our mediocre mentions. These are the games where we start getting into the realm of, I can't really recommend them to the general population. You may still have fun if you have nostalgia for the game or you love the particular genre in which the game exists, but for the general population, I can't really recommend them. They've either aged a bit too poorly or they might've had a couple of issues with them to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to our footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot in good conscience recommend these games to anyone. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Flashback. Flashback 
Flashback is a cinematic sci-fi platform puzzle action game developed by Delphine Software and published by U.S. Gold back in 1992 for Amiga with several other ports that would follow. Now, to understand how Flashback came to be, we need to look at the early years of Delphine Software, the state of game licensing at the time, and the evolution of game designer Paul Crisset. Now, French software company Delphine Software International was founded in 1988, with its main focus being the creation of cinematic gaming experiences for computer and home consoles. And one of the first employees to join that company was a man named Paul Quisset, who was a French video game developer and designer who would become the lead designer for Delphine Software overall. So he became the lead designer for the company. In 1989, Quisset began working on one of the company's first games, which was called Future Wars. It was a point-and-click, third-person graphical adventure game. While Quisset was working on the overall design and structure for that title, another man named Eric Chahi was hired to work on the game as a graphics designer. Together, Quisset and Chahi worked on and completed Future Wars, which was released to positive reviews by both the press and the gaming community. Released under the Delphine Software Cinematique label, a sign that Delphine Software was really focused on providing cinematic experiences in their game, this was one of those earlier cinematic graphical adventure experiences that the team worked on. So upon completion of the game, Quisset went off to begin working on his next title, which was another adventure called Operation Stealth, a game that was inspired by the James Bond film series. Eric Chahi, as longtime listeners might know, went off to develop his masterpiece, Out of This World. And if anybody is interested in learning more about Out of This World, uh, please go listen to that episode. We also did an episode on Heart of the Alien, which was Out of This World's sequel. So if anybody's inter interested, go out and listen to those. Returning to Operation Stealth, Quisset would design the game to be a pretty close approximation of a James Bond adventure, complete with spy operative John Glames, who was now a CIA rather than MI6 agent, espionage, hidden bases to explore, and of course, cool gadgets to acquire and use. Now, the game was originally published by a company called U.S. Gold, who was a British company that was focused on publishing titles developed around the world for mass market distribution in Europe. When it came time to distribute in the U.S., however, Interplay would be handed the reins, and in the process, the game would be rebranded to become a fully licensed James Bond adventure, at least as far as the main character's name and the game's title were concerned. Released as James Bond The Stealth Affair in the United States, nearly everything else about the game was identical to its original release, which means James Bond was still kind of taking directions from the CIA, which is a little bit weird for that character. The game did add in a brief line about him being on loan from the British government, but other than that, it was pretty much the same exact game, so it would go on to pretty much be identical to the original release. And now that we're starting to talk about that James Bond licensed, in quotes, experience, it's time to talk about licensing in video and computer games in general. And we've talked a little bit about this in prior episodes, specifically the DuckTales episode where we talked about the state of licensing and why licensing in video games is generally a poor thing. It's generally not all that well received because 
most of the time, licensing deals are simply cash grabs. These are companies that have some hot intellectual property and they want to make money off of it, as anybody would. So they make deals with video game developers and companies and they license their intellectual property to those video game developers to develop something, some sort of game either in the universe for that property or using characters from that property. And oftentimes the licensors don't really care all that much about how that company or how that video game developer utilizes the license. Uh, some of them do, and some of them actually pay attention and try to make sure there's some degree of quality or consistency. Disney has done that in the past with some of their licensed games, but a lot of companies don't care. They just want to make money off of the title. And you see this a lot, especially with movies that get licensed and turned into games. A lot of times, especially in the 80s into the 90s, you would see a ton of licensed titles pop up on home consoles of the time. Oftentimes, those home titles were based on movie properties, and most of the time, they didn't match or align with the movie at all other than in the loosest sense. And a lot of that is because a movie is not an interactive medium. And a lot of what you see in a movie may not necessarily translate well into a game. So what ends up happening is the game developers have to add additional content, add additional interactivity beyond what you would see in a movie. So unless you're playing a game based on a solely action-based movie, which oftentimes may translate just a little bit better, it's oftentimes very difficult to create a good licensed game, especially because, like we were talking about, the licensor doesn't really care. As long as they're getting money, they're okay and they're happy. With that said, the fact that Operation Stealth would get the James Bond license with what amounted to a couple lines of name, dialogue, and title changes speaks either to the lackluster licensing models of the time or Paul Quisset's original adventure being more of a direct copy rather than an approximation of a James Bond adventure. Regardless of how the game was released or who the main character was, the end result was another cinematique engine adventure released to various computer platforms in 1990. Jumping ahead to 1991, that would be a really big year for Delphine Software, as Eric Chahi's game, Out of This World, would release to rave reviews among critics and gamers alike. The game would introduce a new cinematic style that would try to create as close to an interactive movie as would be possible for the time. That meant no user interface, no heads-up display, no score, no lives. It was just you and a desolate alien world, and your viewpoint into the world was effectively framed cinematically, like a movie. You would just be seeing a side perspective or a side-based perspective of your character as you would navigate the game world, complete different puzzles, destroy other enemies, and jump and navigate the game world via platforms and other kinds of elements like that incredibly cinematic experience, almost nothing like it had existed before it was released. Now, there are some differences here between what Out of This World was and what that engine was and the traditional cinematique Delphine engine. So just to talk about that briefly, the games that Paul Quisset had been working on using the cinematique engine 
were point-and-click adventure games. These are games very traditional or similar to what you might have seen from Sierra Online or LucasArts in that it would be a third-person perspective. You would see your character on the screen and you'd be able to use your mouse and or a keyboard to navigate environments and do different actions or take certain actions in the environment. You could maybe pick up something. You might be able to look at something and get some additional detailed text about it. You could talk to other characters. You may be able to ask them questions or open up doors or open cabinets and things like that. So it was a very traditional kind of point-and-click experience. Out of This World was not a point-and-click experience. It was actually looked at as an evolution of what was the traditional adventure game experience that Delphine had been known for up to that point. Out of This World gave you, the player, full control over your character. You navigated the game world. You If you wanted your character to jump, you would have to jump. You would take your controller in hand and you would have to navigate those scenes. Any of the danger that you faced was real time and you had to react accordingly. So this was a big change. This was a big evolution for Delphine Software. Out of this world was something that nobody had really ever seen before and marked a landmark for Delphine itself. Now, at the same time as Out of This World was being released, Paul Quisset was working on yet another point-and-click adventure title for Delphine and U.S. Gold, once again using the Cinematic engine. That game, Cruise for a Corpse, would release to favorable reviews and would further cement Quisset as a well-regarded, narrative-focused game designer. Now, while Quisset and Delphine Software had some solid successes with their earlier Cinematic titles, Out of This World would change everything. The cinema experience that Delphine had been striving for was finally accomplished, albeit by what would amount to a single talented individual's efforts to bring his vision to life. With Out of This World as the new standard for excellence in the company, the team began looking forward to their next game, with Quisset ready to once again act as the director. This time, they would be approached by U.S. Gold with an interesting opportunity and a highly coveted license. U.S. Gold wanted Delphine to create a game based on the Godfather license. So for anybody who does not know, let's talk about the Godfather. It was originally a book by Mario Puzo back in 1969 that would eventually be turned into a movie series with the first title releasing in 1972. It tells the story of an Italian-American organized crime family and their lives over a period of several decades starting in the 1940s. It would go on to be one of the most highly acclaimed movies of all time, and it would spawn an even higher regarded sequel with The Godfather 2, and then a further sequel later on with The Godfather 3 that many people wish never happened. But regardless, those first two films, highly acclaimed and just critical darlings, they were some of the best films of their time and remain on many people's best films of all time list even to this day. Now, as you might imagine... Any movie that was effectively a historical, albeit dramatic, portrayal of mafia crime in the mid-1900s would have its foundations in realism. It was not something where you were going to see a lot of unrealistic elements. It sort of was almost a period piece to a degree. Paul Quisset and the Delphine team received the news of potentially being able to create a Godfather game. One of the greatest cinematic stories ever created, paired with a gaming company who has always aspired to create interactive cinematic experiences. They were just coming off of a revolutionary release that would influence other games for years to come. It sounded like a match made in heaven. So, Quisset and the team deliberated, and came up with an idea that they believed would truly do justice to the license, and their cinematic intentions. They would create the Godfather in space. 
seriously, the Godfather in the future in space. A movie originally focused on the 1940s crime family, fast forwarded to the future in space. Now, we all know licensed titles are sometimes a little loose in their interpretation of the original source material. This one, though, eh, this one sounds a little bit like a stretch. Regardless, Quisset and the team began working on the title, creating a demo in around six months. They showed that work-in-progress Space Godfather game to U.S. Gold, and they determined that probably not the best use of the license, so they decided to pull the plug on the whole Godfather game idea. They still, however, kept an agreement with Delphine to create a new, unlicensed title. Their only request was that they wanted the game to be created for consoles, more specifically the relatively recently released Sega Genesis. This was something entirely unfamiliar to Delphine. Their prior titles had all been developed for computer platforms, with other companies handling any related ports to consoles. So their other titles, specifically Out of This World, did appear on a number of consoles, but that was not something that Delphine itself would handle the porting duties for. They would hand that to a different company to do that port. So they really had only expertise in the computer market. Now, for what it's worth, the framework for the game that Quisset and the team had created was itself good, it just wasn't a great representation of The Godfather. So Quisset went off to rework the game's story. Instead of Michael Corleone avoiding mob bosses in space, he'd shift the focus to be a scientist with amnesia, who over the course of the game would need to thwart an alien menace that had both infiltrated Earth and was looking to take over the planet. It was in this way that The Godfather, in space, would morph into what we'd eventually come to know as Flashback. After becoming untethered to the Godfather license, Quisset and the team set out to create a cinematic sci-fi adventure who would take inspiration from other sci-fi cinema of the time. This would manifest itself throughout the game, from the holocube projections straight out of Star Wars, to the memory chair reminiscent of Total Recall, to the Death Tower, which was a fight-for-your-life television show almost directly attributable to The Running Man. With their sci-fi cinema inspirations driving the story, attention turned to how to create the graphics and overall mechanics for the game. And here, they took inspiration from Delphine's own Out of This World. Rather than create a point-and-click adventure similar to Quisset's prior work, Flashback would utilize a very similar style to Out of This World, with a two-dimensional side-scrolling view of the game world, where the player would navigate a series of screens needing to solve puzzles and combat deadly alien enemies in order to progress. Quisset decided early on that this new title would be more action-focused than other Delphine titles, which necessitated brand new interfaces and controls, including the ability to shoot, duck, and roll, perform running leaps to grab onto out-of-reach platforms, and other action-oriented gameplay mechanics. Within those action trappings, Quisset's goal was to create as cinematic of an experience as possible, so he decided that the game should run at 24 frames per second, the same speed as movie film. He further decided that in order to create the smoothness of animation he so desired, he'd utilize rotoscoping, a technique that Eric Chahi used to great effect in Out of This World. So we should talk about rotoscoping for just a minute or two. And I know longtime listeners are probably going to say, I have heard about rotoscoping now at least three times in prior episodes. The one consideration, though, is that we get new listeners all the time, so anybody who may be new may not have heard those prior episodes. So I do just want to talk about rotoscoping for a little bit. My apologies to anybody who has heard me ramble on about this for uh, several episodes in the past. So rotoscoping is a technique of 
basically creating animation based on actual filmed actors and actual film. So think about it like this. In the early Disney films, what would happen, the reason why most of the dance scenes or ball scenes in older Disney films looked so lifelike and so smooth, it wasn't because of the degree of hand animation, though obviously the animators were very talented. But what they would do is record individual people actually performing those scenes. They would then take those individual frames of video or movies, and then they would hand draw the animation over those frames, effectively creating the animation, but using the movie frames as the basis for the animation. So in that way, you would get incredibly fluid, lifelike animation because you were literally taking frames of what would have otherwise been a movie or video and converting them into hand-drawn cells, which you would then be able to splice together into an actual animation. So Eric Chahi used rotoscoping in Out of This World to create a number of different things, including the player animation as well as certain cinematic cutscenes. So it was used to great effect in that game. It wasn't the first time it was used. Rotoscoping was also used by Jordan Mechner while creating Karataka, and he would also use that in Prince of Persia. So there was a little bit of a precedence for rotoscoping being used in video games. And Paul Quizzett decided that he was going to use that same technique to create the animations and lifelike cinematic animations that he wanted to include in Flashback. Those graphics and fluid animations, however, would come at a cost. In order to truly implement Quizzett's vision, the typical size of a Sega Genesis cartridge, which was at the time 16 megabytes, just wouldn't suffice. The team would need to bump that size up to 24 megabits to fit everything needed for the game. There was only one issue with that, though. Sega had not yet offered official cartridges that would come with that much memory. Undeterred, the team pushed forward and created their own mega cartridge without Sega's knowledge, which could have posed actual real issues if discovered. Luckily for the team, though, Sega would begin offering 24 megabit cartridges officially before the game would release, so ultimately it was a non-issue. Turning our attention to music, the team relied on musician Jean Baudelot, who had previously worked with Delphine Sulphur's parent company, Delphine Studios, as a television and radio jingle composer. He'd similarly take inspiration from sci-fi movies of the time, including Terminator and Predator, which if anybody's keeping track of all the movies they took inspiration from, it is pretty obvious that many Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of the 80s and even into early 90s would inspire the creation of the game. And as work continued on the game, it became obvious that even with a 24 megabit cartridge, the team would need to cut some content. So a small selection of monsters and animations ended up getting dropped. Additional revisions and refinements would continue until finally Flashback would release on the Amiga computer platform in 1992, a full year before the Sega Genesis version launched. Interestingly, the game was developed from the ground up for the Genesis, but that particular version would be the second version released to the public. Additional ports would follow, all of which had their own quirks and eccentricities. And you all know, I love talking about the different quirks and different versions of games and ports that happen, because I just find the different restrictions or the different features of, of various hardware systems and hardware platforms to be fascinating, and how developers have to shift their game or change their game around for those different platforms, I just find really interesting. So let's talk about a few of those ports, just really briefly. The DOS version of the game 
would have an extended intro and additional cutscenes integrated into the game. So we'll talk about this a little bit later, but basically when you play the game, every single action that you take that requires picking up, or I'll say most actions you take that require picking something up from the game world, rather than just having your character pick it up, you would actually bend down and pick up the item and you would see that as an animated cutscene. So the DOS version added additional cutscenes into the game. The original Amiga version had those cutscenes as well, but by default, I believe they were turned off. And the reason for that is it would actually slow down the gameplay because of how the Amiga had to access the memory in order to play those cutscenes. So you could technically enable them on the Amiga, but by default, they were off. In the DOS version, those cutscenes were on, and not only were those cutscenes on, there were also additional cutscenes included into the game. Talking about some of the home consoles, the Sega CD, 3DO, and the Compact Disc Interactive, or CDI, would use their CD-ROM format to include pre-rendered cinematics and voice acting. The Super Nintendo version in North America would come bundled with a Marvel comic book within the manual that would serve as a precursor to the main game. That comic, by the way, would also be included with the Sega Genesis and Sega CD versions of the title. And the comic was effectively a prequel, so to speak, or it kind of set the stage for the overall story. So the thought being, you would read this comic that was included in the manual of the game, and then you would know all of the backstory that you would need in order to start playing the game and not feel totally lost by watching that first cutscene. Speaking of the Super Nintendo version, there would also be some censorship there. And anybody who knows Nintendo, especially back in the 80s and early 90s, knows that they really tried to portray a family-friendly image to the public, and as a result, a number of their titles were censored in comparison to other platform versions. So in Flashback, or with Flashback, there would be various scenes or objects in the game world that would be censored. One example of which is the Death Tower, which is that television-to-the-death kind of show that is very similar or at least very inspired by The Running Man. Rather than calling that area of the game Death Tower, it would be changed to Cyber Tower on the Super Nintendo version. And there were other kinds of changes like that just to make things feel a little bit more family-friendly. Upon its release, Flashback would be praised by critics and players, with many complimenting the game's graphics, animations, and audio, while there were some critiques around the game's controls and usage of save points serving as minor detractors from the overall experience. Those minor critiques would do nothing to prevent the game from becoming a bestseller, though, as Flashback would go on to sell 750,000 copies while being recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as being the highest-selling game created by a French developer of all time. Now, that was at that time. I'm assuming there are other French developers. I know Ubisoft has a very large French or uh, France presence now. I'm assuming some of their titles have probably eclipsed Flashback at this point. But at the time, Flashback was the Guinness record holder for the highest selling game created by a French developer. Over the years, the Flashback universe would be revisited. It would spawn a three-dimensional sequel called Fade to Black in 1995, a remake of the original Flashback in 2013, and a 25th anniversary edition released in 2018. Most recently, though, there has been work on a brand new sequel simply titled Flashback 2, which, as of this recording, hasn't been released, but was previously expected by the end of 2022. Paul Quisset would be involved in all of these efforts, though none would be as well-regarded as the original release. 
Unlike Eric Chahi, who famously walked away from the gaming industry for years before eventually returning, Chrisit would remain active over the years. In addition to his flashback-related efforts, Chrisit would be involved in the development of maligned fighting game Shaq Fu, motorcycle racing title Moto Racer, and action role-playing game Darkstone. None of those games, however, would reach the heights of flashback. Paul Quisset, like his contemporary Eric Chahi, would have the majority of his career defined by a single masterpiece creation. It's incredibly hard to strike gold multiple times, especially when the title you're trying to replicate is as well-liked and critically praised as the original flashback was. While Quisset's future endeavors may have never reached the same heights as the game that began life as The Godfather in Space, his work on flashback stands on its own as a testament to his creativity and genius. Hopefully, we get to see a true, full-blown sequel to Flashback in the near future. If not, though, we can all at least enjoy the fact that the original cinematic platformer remains a part of gaming history to this day. are now going to shift to talk about what it felt like to play Flashback today versus when it was originally released around 30-ish years ago. So just to refresh everybody's memory, Flashback is a cinematic sci-fi platform puzzle action game that was released back in 1992 for a number of different platforms. So let's talk about the game and what it means to be a cinematic side-scrolling platform action puzzle game, which sounds like five different genres in once or at once. So let's talk about what that means. So from a cinematic perspective, the reason that this is cinematic is because the way the game is designed is meant to simulate or replicate a very fluid smoothness to the overall motion, coupled with the fact that each of the scenes are framed. When you navigate the game world, you navigate a series of screens. There is no automatic side-scrolling or scrolling around the screens like you might see in a Super Mario title. Instead, as you progress, you go from screen to screen, and as you get to the edge of the screen, the game will load the following screen, and it'll it'll just basically disappear the first one and reappear with you in the appropriate space in the second screen or whatever screen you're navigating to. So each of those screens, because the game was focused on presenting individual screens of images and enemies and things like that, every single screen had a certain degree of cinematic framing associated with it. So when you looked at it, it looked very well put together. It looked like it was a cohesive image or a cohesive scene from what would effectively be a movie. Now, there were some scenes where the screens literally ran into each other and enemies can traverse from one screen to another. We'll talk more about that when we start talking more about the actual mechanics of the game. But from a cinematic perspective, they really did take a focus on trying to create something that felt almost movie-like. Obviously not from a visual or true visual perspective, because the graphics could not approach reality. But the overall structure and the way that they framed each scene did feel cinematic in nature. Now, this is a platform game, but it is also a puzzle game, and it is also an action game. And the reason for that is, very similar to Out of This World, the way the game worked is as you would navigate the various screens, a lot of times you would have to climb up onto different ledges or you'd have to jump across gaps or you'd have to do other platforming kind of things. So it absolutely takes some inspiration from the platform genre. 
at the same time, this game would have a ton of action, and your gun and shield are pretty much your best friend, because as you navigate the game world, you will encounter a number of enemies that you have to take care of in order to progress through the game. So it is a very action-heavy game. Um, And beyond that, certain sections of the game, you do have to solve some rudimentary puzzles. Now, none of these are terribly complex, and there actually is some very light questing associated in the game as well. Uh, There's one series of quests, which happens at a certain point in the game where you basically have to complete a handful of quests before you can move on further into the game that involves you basically getting some direction and then you having to navigate to a certain part of the game world, do some actions, and then return and get your next series in the quest. Pretty simple stuff, but there is a degree of questing and puzzling elements in the game. As we had talked about before, this is very much a sci-fi story. These, the story in the game and the various sci-fi elements throughout the game take inspiration from a number of sci-fi movies of the time or a recent, for the early 90s, movies like Total Recall, The Running Man, uh, Terminator, Predator, a bunch of other films like we were talking about. And you see that throughout the game. You see that all the way from just the environments that you have to navigate, some of the quest-like experiences that you have, the various items that you have accessible to you. Everything feels, well, not everything, but a lot of things feel to a degree derivative. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it definitely is a game that you can see was inspired by other things. It is not a purely unique experience. And most media has some degree of inspiration from what came before it. So that's not a criticism. That's simply a fact, something that you could just observe by playing the game. And I will say my intent here is not to compare flashback to uh, out of this world. There has to be some comparison here, though, because both games are of a very similar style, albeit made by different people. But When they were released, or when Flashback was released, I thought, as a kid, that Flashback was sort of a sequel to Out of This World, and I think there were other people that felt that way too, because the style was very similar. Now, granted, in reality, they are not related at all, other than the fact they were made by the same software company, but it felt very similar to Out of This World, but there were some key differences. And probably the biggest difference between the two is the fact that Flashback was much more action-oriented. It also was much more game-oriented. Like we were talking about before, Out of This World took great efforts to make sure that the experience it would provide was very cinematic. It removed a lot of the gameplay elements that would typically be found in games, like scores, lives, and things like that. Flashback had no issue with any of those things. They they were definitely making a game, albeit a cinematic game. So let's talk through some of the other structural elements of Flashback and how the game functions. So like I said, there's a lot of action. You do get a gun with unlimited bullets, which is very much useful because you will be fighting a lot of enemies in this game. You also start the game with a shield with a limited number of charges That basically represents the amount of hit points or life that you have. So once you get hit, the number of charges that your shield has, you will die and have to start over from whatever portion of the game you made it, at least from a checkpoint standpoint. 
Now that shield can be regenerated. There are regenerators included across the world that you can regenerate your shield. So it's not like you have to have a one and done kind of thing. They are in some cases or in some locations, few and far between. So some areas it is pretty darn difficult to keep your shield topped up, but they do have that. And and it's a welcome addition because uh, in comparison, once again, to out of this world, there was no shield per se in that you didn't have any, any hit points. If you got hit once you were going to die, you could use your blaster to generate a force field, but that's not the same as having actual hit points. So in flashback, there was a shield that acted as a pseudo hit point kind of system. As you platform throughout the game, you will encounter a ton of enemies and different types of enemies as well. Some enemies are small animals that are relatively simple to defeat. There are other simple humanoid kinds of creatures that, once again, don't really have that much going for them. They're not really that hard to to go through. But there are some much more challenging enemies, especially as you get later in the game. There is one set of enemies that rides or has a rocket pack on their back that lets them navigate the game world very quickly and will ultimately try to get the the drop on you in case you're not paying attention. There are robotics kind of enemies. There's one robot that kind of sweeps across the floor with a little prod that will shock you. There are some floating robots or floating uh, spherical robots that will try to approach you and shock you. They kind of looked like the little spherical things from the movie Phantasm. If anybody saw that movie, that's very similar to what they look like. Um, there's And there's also one enemy, which is probably the most irritating enemy in the game, which is effectively like a Terminator, the T-1000, which is the Terminator that is able to morph via the liquid metal kind of movement and actually change into all sorts of different kinds of creatures. In flashback, it can't really morph into other creatures, but it can morph into a blob and move around and just otherwise make your life really challenging. With that same variety of enemies, there are also a bunch of various environments in the game, and all of those environments are pretty well detailed. You have forest worlds, which is where you start in the game. Eventually, you'll make your way into a futuristic city with seedy clubs and ultimately will end up going into an alien world itself and underground bases. There are just, there's a large variety of environments included in the game. And as you move through those environments, you will be jumping, rolling, and shooting your way through all of those. The jumping and rolling, we'll talk more about that when we get into the controls section. Shooting, for the most part, felt felt fine. Uh, there are two stances uh, in a little bit of a, of a shift from the traditional kind of cinematic platformer. One, one of your stances enables you to move at normal speeds. That's where you'd be able to run and jump and leap and grab onto stuff. And then a second stance is purely your shooting stance, which when you move into that or when you switch into that stance, you effectively creep along the wall and are able to shoot. So in order to shoot, you must switch into your shooting stance. In order to move effectively, you have to switch into your movement stance. So it's kind of, and I didn't plan it this way, but it's very similar in at least concept to what Jordan Mechner created with Karataka, where there were two different stances in that as well. One that allowed you to move relatively freely, and the other which was used for whenever you were in a fight. Flashback effectively does the same thing, albeit with guns versus fists and feet. Very similar to Out of This World, the game is 
composed as a series of levels. Each of those levels is a collection of screens that you need to complete. And across the entire experience, there are seven total levels, which means there are effectively seven total checkpoints because there are no auto-saved checkpoints in the middle of the levels. There are, however, save points that you can use throughout the levels. So what ends up happening is over the course of the game, you will eventually get seven passwords, and those seven passwords represent you moving into one of the next levels of the game. There are save points embedded within the levels, most often near or near-ish shield regenerators also embedded across the levels. The one thing I will say about the save points, though, is they are sometimes spread out a little bit more uh, broadly or a little bit more distance based than what I would have otherwise liked. And there is one specific example that we will go into in a few minutes that for me was probably a little unbalanced from my perspective. We'll talk more about that. And that's one of the things that really drives some of the difficulty in the game is the fact that the save points become a little bit more sparse as the game goes on. And I can appreciate that because adding some difficulty as you get better with the game and you start moving deeper into the game, that kind of makes sense to me. But then you also have the combat, which becomes more difficult because new enemies start getting introduced and some of those enemies are very difficult in comparison to earlier enemies. And then you also have the platforming elements that that kind of tie in with the overall combat and with the lack of saves. And that's really what ends up driving additional difficulty in later portions of the game. So before we get into the specifics of the review, I do want to mention that the specific version that I played for this podcast was the Sega Genesis version. And the reason for that is because according to Paul Quisset, he said that the game was designed for the Sega Genesis. Even though the Amiga version came out a year before the Sega Genesis version, the game had been designed from the very beginning as a Sega Genesis game. So I wanted to experience the game exactly the way Paul Quisset had intended it, and that is why I played the Sega Genesis version for this particular section of the podcast. So if anybody has played a different version... You may hear some things that might be a little bit different than what you are used to, so just please keep that in mind. Before we go into the more specific aspects of the game, though, I also want to take a look at the back of the box, because back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of times your buying decision was based on what the box looked like. You might be walking around a video game or computer game store, and you might see a box that looks cool, and you'll pick it up, you'll turn it over, and you'll read what's on the back of the box, and depending on the quality of that marketing, you may or may not decide to buy the game. Not everybody had magazines, and certainly at this point, nobody had real access to the internet and the ability to really look at these games independently and see what they were like before you would buy them. So a lot of times, people were making their decisions based on what the box looked like. So, for flashback... The back of the box says U.S. Gold and Delphine Software International present Flashback, the quest for identity, the CD-ROM game in a cartridge. And then there are six different pictures on the back of the box, each of which represent a different area or level of the game. It starts with Planet Titan, which says brave mutants, robots, antimatter fields, and the primitive inhabitants as you find your way through the jungle. New Washington says, first recover your memory, then go undercover to earn money. Finally, buy a false ID if you want to sneak back on Earth. 
Then you go to the Death Tower, climb the eight floors of the Death Tower Labyrinth, avoid the deadly replicants, and win a free ticket to Earth, which then you go to Earth, which says, Big trouble. The authorities have discovered your false ID and send robot cops to capture you. Assuming you get past that, you'll get to the Paradise Club, which says you discovered the aliens' plans, but somehow end up being captured and mysteriously transported through space. And then finally, you get to Planet Morphs. You materialized on their home planet. Now all you have to do is destroy the morphs and live to tell about it. And then it does advertise that you can get the whole story with a 14-page flashback comic book from Marvel Comics included inside. So that is the back of the box for flashback. And I'm going to say, I don't know that I actually appreciate what they did with this particular box. And I, I hardly ever comment on the boxes for these games because most of the time they're relatively simple or non-offensive or anything like that. They're just kind of marketing materials with this one. Other than them saying this is a CD-ROM and a cartridge, which I thought was an interesting marketing pitch, because that does kind of say what they were trying to do. They upped the cartridge memory. They had a very expansive kind of uh, set of graphics and animations, and they were really trying to do things that were much more advanced than what you would expect for the Sega Genesis in particular. But the rest of the box kind of tells you the story of the game. It kind of lays it all out. It, it, it tells you what levels you're going to go to. And with a cinematic game like this, I don't know that I like that. I think I would have rather been surprised. I don't know that I would want to know that I'm going to go through all of these different areas. I'll eventually go on earth and then I'll have to infiltrate a club and then I'll be able to get to the alien homeworld. Not that any of that stuff was particularly secretive, but it does kind of lay out the story on the back of the box. And for me, I would rather enjoy that and experience it for myself firsthand versus read about it for the first time on the actual box. Anyway, that was the way they decided to market the game. I'm not particularly a fan of that one, but I'm sure other people might feel otherwise. So let's talk more specifically about some of the elements of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. And I have to say, the game visually looks great. The environmental details and variety of the environments that they have here, and we talked a little bit about some of those environments before, they are all very, very detailed. The forest world looks like a forest world. It has tons of greenery and tree-like structures and leaves and everything, grass, and you navigate that area, and it's, it feels like a lush tropical world. And then you move into more of the urban kinds of areas with cities and things like that. And the, the actual futuristic city included in the game, New Washington looks awesome. As I was playing the game, I kind of got a feeling of Shadowrun, which was another cyberpunk game that was released back in the nineties for a couple of consoles and would eventually go on to have multiple versions over the years or multiple different games in the Shadowrun universe over the years. But the CD city, definitely gave me kind of a cyberpunk futuristic sci-fi vibe and it was working for me and part of the reason why that happened is because the graphics were just really well done and the animations were super smooth the rotoscoping this game was done to great effect and it really did improve the overall quality of the visual experience 
For me, I loved the running leap and platform grab. It looked like something you would see in a movie. It was just so smooth, so well done. And the way that the game showed the momentum of your jump and kind of the inertia as you grab onto a ledge and kind of swing a little bit back and forth as you're dangling before you pull yourself up just felt awesome to me. The enemy animations similarly look great. They move around really nicely, even though some of the enemies are really very irritating, but we'll talk about that. Uh, There were cutscenes like we were talking about, both story-based cutscenes as well as cutscenes that would play when you would pick up various objects or do certain actions in the game world. They start to show their age a little bit. The cutscenes are not quite as smooth as the regular gameplay, and they look almost caricature Ask when you look at the cutscenes and some of the graphics there, and certainly the characters that are included in the cutscene. That's a relatively minor critique. For the most part, the character and the enemy design works, and the rest of the game is designed so well graphically that you could look at it and not even recognize that it was a game released and created 30 years ago. It looks like a modern retro title, which is awesome. Moving on to the sound and the music. There's really not a ton of music in the game. What's there definitely matches well with the environment and action. And you can see the sci-fi influences, not just in the overall gameplay mechanics or the game story, but you can also see those sci-fi influences in the music. And definitely Terminator is one of those influences because a lot of the, the beats and the kind of synth based sounds in there definitely is reminiscent of Terminator. It was just pretty good, synthy, 80-ish musics. No no real complaint here, but nothing that was terribly memorable either. Uh, the sound effects were all fine. Shooting your gun made sense. The sound that enemies would have when they got hit or when you were jumping and different elements or environments in the game world all sounded fine. So I can't complain too much about the sound and the music. It's just... There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of music there. What was there is good, but there's not a whole lot to go off of. But overall, no real complaints. Moving on to the narrative and story. The way the game works, or the the overall narrative for the game, is set in the future in the year 2142. And you play an intelligence agent by the name of Conrad Hart. And you find a special technology, or you discover that there are shape-shifting aliens that have effectively infiltrated the human race and they are spreading around and they are living among us. So you record a message that's meant to be played to yourself just in case you get into trouble and you somehow lose your memory. Before you can warn anybody about this threat other than the message that was effectively recorded for you, you get captured and conveniently enough, you had amnesia. You you get amnesia because your memory is erased. So it's not like you just bump your head, but this was an active enemy or, or active memory erasure by the enemies that capture you. So you don't remember anything at the beginning of the game. You do eventually escape though, and you crash land onto a jungle planet or a jungle, at least a jungle environment. That's that opening world. 
And from that point, you do recover your memory because you were able to grab a holocube. That holocube has a message in it. You go and find the person that is referenced in that holocube. They're able to restore your memory. And suddenly, you know what your job is to do. And you progress through the rest of the game, knowing that you've got to save the world and defeat the alien menace once and for all and eliminate all of those shape-shifting aliens that have infiltrated the human race. The story overall was well made, and it was definitely a more direct delivery of the story than what Delphine had done with Out of This World. Out of This World was a little bit more abstract in that you had to learn the story based on your observation of the environments and the interactions of characters. Flashback was much more in your face. There was a true narrative. There was actual dialogue in the game that you would talk with different characters and you would actually get a lot of exposition throughout the game. It was much more like a traditional game-like experience, whereas Out of This World was a bit more experimental, a little bit more cinematic, a little bit more abstract in that regard. So Flashback was a little bit more direct with their story and it worked. You really don't need to wonder what's going on there because they deliver it to you in a much more traditional kind of way, very similar to what you might see in films. And once again, driving that whole cinematic experience goal home, they did create their story like a film narrative. The cutscenes that were included to advance the story were a nice touch for the time. They didn't really age all that well from a graphical perspective, but I appreciated it from a narrative standpoint. Um, overall, the story was pretty good. It was pretty typical sci-fi kind of storylines, but it worked. It worked for the game because it was a sci-fi game. So I didn't really have too much to say negatively or critique-wise about the overall story. Moving on to the controls, let's talk about this because this is one of those areas where I do want to spend a little bit of time talking more specifically. So in the game, you're able to, as with many platform games, you can use your control pad to move side to side. You can move up and down by climbing up ledges or climbing down ledges. You also have a number of action-based elements, so you can crouch, you can roll, you can shoot, you're able to run and or walk, and you can basically navigate these scenes using a combination of your two stances that we referred to earlier, one of which allows you to have fast-paced movement, the other of which is used when you draw your gun and are able to kind of creep along the screen and navigate a little bit more slowly, a little bit more carefully because you figure there might be a threat around there. Very similar to other games of its type, if you jump too far or fall too far, you will die. As you navigate the game world, there are numerous items that you will acquire that you'll be able to use. Sometimes they're very simple items like keys. Sometimes they're more impactful kinds of items like an actual force shield generator that you can use to prevent yourself from getting shot. There's a little bit of a timing element there and you do have to be careful with the timing of that shield if you actually want it to be effective and actually allow you to avoid getting shot. But there are items that you'll be able to use throughout the game that will make your gameplay experience shift and evolve as you play. One of the biggest impactful items that you get that really does change the way you play the game is a teleportation device, which from my standpoint is awesome. The way it works is you can throw your teleporter device pretty much anywhere once you get it, and then you're able to port yourself there. It really opens up the game at that point. 
The only unfortunate thing is that you don't get that teleportation device until pretty late in the game already, so you don't get a ton of time to play around with it. The brief levels that you do have the opportunity to use it, though, I thought it really added an additional uh, dimension to the, to the title and to the overall experience. I wish that you would have had the ability to use that sooner, because that is one of the ways that they introduced puzzles into the game. Part of the puzzling aspect or puzzling elements of the games that that you're able to actually experience is related later in the game to using that teleporter in the right sequence and using it at the right times. Overall, the controls were very smooth to use and the animations made you feel like you had control over your character. That being said, the controls do take some getting used to. And the general motion or the general movement around the game world, if you're just trying to navigate and walk around, that's not really the issue. The biggest issue is when you are trying to shoot and roll around the screen. And and also just basically any time you're going to use your gun, because there's certain elements of the game that change the way the game works when you have your gun drawn. So there is a button that you can holster and unholster your gun. If you unholster your gun and you're ready to shoot something, you can shoot like normal and that controls fine. If you duck, then you go into a stance where pressing left or right will change the direction that you're facing. But if you're already facing a direction and shooting, you actually have to press the button in the opposite direction twice in order to change direction. It's not an immediate. So if you're facing the right and you press left on the controller, it's not like you swing around and face to the left. You actually have to press the left button two times in order to turn around. So the first time you return to a neutral stance, the second time you will turn around and face to the left. That doesn't sound like a big deal, except later in the game when you're fighting those morphing T-1000 kind of creatures, and one of the only ways to avoid their attacks is rolling, it does create a little bit of difficulty. The only way you can roll is when you have your gun drawn and you're in a crouch. That is the only time you can roll in the game, and rolling will become incredibly important as you fight certain enemies. If you jump from one platform down to another with your gun drawn, it will automatically drop you into a crouch, which can be good in some instances, and you can exploit that in certain instances. But in other instances, it might not be all that great because once you go into the crouch, if you forget to stand back up and you press left or right, you may roll to the side. And sometimes rolling off to the side may roll yourself right off a platform and into a nasty death. So there are some things that you have to pay attention to when you're doing the when you're using the controls. Um, like I said, the controls themselves are smooth, but they do get take some getting used to. And even later in the game, I found myself making mistakes with the controls simply because they didn't feel entirely natural. And especially the while you're ducking with the gun and trying to change direction and roll out of the way, those didn't feel as good as just the general movement around the game world. You can also, by the way, roll into a wall, which if you're in the middle of combat will absolutely mess you up because it, it basically staggers you and makes you stand back up. And then a lot of times it doesn't look like your gun is unholstered. So you hit the gun unholster button, but in reality, you just reholstered your gun. So it does create a degree of difficulty here. The controls are one of the aspects that does increase the difficulty of the overall game and also makes combat specifically 
more difficult. I don't know that that was really intended by the designers, but that's ultimately what's, what ends up happening as you work your way through the game. So overall, how did it feel to play the game today versus when it was released 30 years ago? Overall, this was a great game, and it did feel awesome to play, at least after I got used to the controls, which took some time. And like I said, even after you get used to it, it can still be tricky, especially in the height of combat when you're stressed already and trying to avoid taking too much damage, because once again, you have some limited shield and you can't necessarily get shields everywhere you want. It is definitely a little bit tricky and you will mess up your controls even later in the game once you've become fairly proficient with them. For the most part, the game is also well paced. I particularly loved the Death Tower sequence, which literally felt like playing a game version of The Running Man, which by the way, The Running Man, the movie, is one of those guilty pleasure movies for me. I don't know how critical... Uh, respected or not respected that particular movie is. I've got to assume it's probably not all that well respected, but I love that movie personally. It's just one of those guilty pleasures that I just enjoy watching because it's an 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It has a lot of interesting action and I just enjoyed the concept. So I loved the Death Tower sequence in the game because it, it pretty much just replicates that exact concept, albeit in the game world. Now, with that said, Beyond the Death Tower, which is challenging itself, the rest of the game is also challenging. And the spacing of the shield rechargers and save points can be particularly tricky, especially later in the game. Now, there is a way that you can backtrack a bit because you can navigate to pretty much anywhere in a particular level at any point. There are some sections where the game will block you off from going backwards, but other sections and many of the sections you can backtrack to other shields or other save points to sort of to a degree save scum your way through the game a little bit. Like I said, it's not something that you can do universally because there are sections of the game that will be blocked off to you as you move past a certain point, but you can do a little bit of backtracking to make it safer. At the same time, when you do that, the game then begins to feel less streamlined because you you're having this disjointed play. You may go forward a couple screens, you kill a couple bad guys, but your shield is so low, so you go back seven screens to get to the shield regenerator. And then you have to go back forward through the seven screens. Now, luckily, everything stays killed or dead when you go back through the screen, so it's not like you have to actually redo any of those fights or anything like that, but it makes the game itself feel less streamlined. I believe that if they added additional save opportunities or additional shield regenerators, they could have made the game feel smoother to play without necessarily decreasing the overall difficulty. That difficulty aside, most of the game is fairly challenging. Near the end of the game, though, the difficulty shoots up dramatically, especially the second to last major level of the game. That level in particular has very challenging enemies, and they're often thrown at you in multiples or in environments that will limit your movement such that it makes combat very challenging, especially when you're fighting those more difficult enemies. And the worst enemy in the game, the absolute worst from my standpoint, is the T-1000 Terminator thing, the one that morphs and moves around. This thing is the bane of my existence. So the way it works is it will morph into a ball of goo. And that ball of goo will leap around on either the floor or the ceiling. Sometimes it'll jump from the floor to the ceiling. Other times it'll jump from the ceiling to the floor. 
and it will land near you. Its goal is to try to land near you and rise up from the floor, which if you're too close to it, if he hits you, you're going to lose a shield charge. You'll be knocked back onto your butt and you'll have to get back up. So the way to avoid him is by rolling, which requires more key presses than what should be necessary. Because if you need to roll, that means you're in a crouch. And if you're in a crouch, that means you have your gun drawn. And if you have your gun drawn, it means you're trying to shoot this alien guy before he tries to kill you. So if he gets too close and you recognize, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to roll out of the way, if you're not facing in the right direction with your gun drawn, you will have to press in the opposite direction twice just to get into that position and then press the direction again to roll out of the way. It is something that is doable. You do get used to it enough to be able to do that okay. But in this particular level of the game, there is one section where you have to fight three of these morphing guys at the same exact time, and they all move with different timing, and they all are at different parts of the screen, and it just becomes an incredibly frustrating experience. And there are other areas in that level as well where you fight multiple of these guys, and it's just it's just not pleasant. It just loses a little bit of its luster when you start having to have that. One of the other complications here is that sometimes you'll roll And as the the enemy was navigating, it just randomly pops up in the middle of your roll, which knocks you down again. It is very irritating. There are also some times where the enemy just decides, I'm not going to pop up at all. So you keep rolling back and forth, back and forth. The enemy keeps following you and it just never pops up. It takes it takes a good 15, 20 seconds, sometimes, if not longer for that alien to pop up off of the floor so that you have a chance to even shoot it. And by the way, it doesn't just take one bullet, it takes three to four bullets, depending on which version of the enemy you're facing. So what that means is that you're going to have some pretty long fights with these guys, and some of them are going to be pretty darn frustrating to progress through, especially when they start throwing more and more of that same enemy at him. So it's just one of those things where I think that that particular enemy could have been designed better, and I understand the desire once again to drive additional difficulty as you get better with the game and as you get further along in the game. It's just one of those things where I feel like they could have kept the difficulty but removed the tedium and especially the second to last level of the game and the one scene where they throw three of those guys at you at the same time. It is absolutely brutal and that same level Beyond that one scenario where they throw three of those T-1000-like creatures at you at the same time, that one level requires a ton of difficult scenarios before you can actually make your way to a save point. This is one of those areas where not only are you fighting a bunch of bad guys that are difficult, you're also dealing with environments that are difficult and make combat challenging. That scene where you're fighting the three bad guys, you actually have to drop off of some platforms in order to get to a level that you can move around relatively freely. Once you get there, you have to roll around because that's the only way to avoid the enemy's attacks. And at the same time, you get past that one screen and you're you're still got to get through another at least five, six screens filled with these enemies. Again, it is very tricky to say the least. Now, one of the other things that I had a, a major issue with with this game is that later on in the game in particular, there do appear to be some dead ends that you can get yourself trapped in. And that may actually require you to restart a given level, depending on when your last save point was or where you are in the game. And these dead ends almost always involve 
elevators. There's a couple of sections where it feels like, and I don't know if this is true, but for me, as I was playing through the game, it feels like you almost need to predict that you need to leave your teleportation device somewhere else in the level in order to be able to return from what would become a non-functioning elevator shaft. There's no reason for these dead-end kind of things to occur in this particular game. I really think they should have taken the time to improve that. And maybe I'm missing something too. It's very possible that I'm missing some key piece of functionality or special switch or something that would enable those elevators to be able to be used again. But there's one section in particular that I'm thinking of that I've tried everything and I could not get that elevator to return. I basically had to restart the level or at least restart from my last save point, which was a little bit ago because not all these levels have save points relatively closely spaced together. So there are definitely some improvements to the game. It was not one of those experiences that was 100% perfect from the get-go. Overall, though, the game was fun, and I enjoyed it. So what is our verdict? I will say that Flashback is still a great game, even today, though it is not without its faults. It's definitely designed more like a game, an actual game, than Delphine's other cinematic side-scrolling effort out of this world, and though it shares a similar style, it is itself a unique experience. The game is much longer than Out of This World, and also much more difficult. I wasn't intending this to be a comparison kind of review, but I know that I did drop in some of these comparisons throughout the world, and this is really because that when I was a kid, I really did believe that the two games were related in some way. I now know that they weren't, and even back then I think I recognized that they weren't true sequels, but it they are inextricably linked together because of how they were developed and what company developed them, so it's kind of hard to look at one without thinking about the other. That being said, Flashback is definitely something I recommend you should all play today, but it is not a 100% smooth experience. The biggest issue for me is the late game difficulty coupled with less than ideal controls. If you can get over that though, you're going to find yourself a pretty enjoyable experience. And honestly, before the late game, I was thinking to myself, this is a freaking masterpiece. I was really enjoying my time with the game, but my opinion did sour a bit with those late game sequences. They just felt less well designed and less balanced than the rest of the game. And overusing that one irritating enemy type really didn't help. For those reasons, Flashback is one of our golden oldies. You should experience it, but go in with your eyes open. It'll be fun, it'll be interesting, it'll be challenging, and it'll be frustrating. It'll also mostly be a good time, and I have no reservations recommending it as a worthwhile title to play today. That was our episode on Flashback. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to let me know how I'm doing or give me suggestions for future shows or just talk about classic technology or classic gaming in general, I'd love to hear from you. And there are a couple of ways you can reach out. 
You can either send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or you can reach out on Twitter where I have the handle at classicgamingt. So definitely reach out. Let me know how I'm doing, or if you have anything else you want to talk about, just let me know. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. Before we call it for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Bonk's Adventure for the TurboGrafx-16. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories of that title, feel free to write in. I definitely want to hear what you're all thinking. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on one of any number of potential podcast engines, and it would be great if you feel so inclined if you would leave us a review. I would love to understand and get the feedback of the community to make sure that we are building and creating the best possible podcast that we can. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about just getting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, it is really about ensuring that this podcast is focused on the right things and delivering the right content that the community wants to hear. The only way to do that is by getting feedback from all of you to make sure that we are creating the best possible podcast that I can. We are still growing. We will continuously and will always be growing. We will always be developing the community here around the classic gaming and all of the different technologies that are associated with it. So I am definitely excited for the future. I hope all of you are as well. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Bonk's Adventure. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>